morning. We're going to read quickly from the passage that we will be reading from today in 1 Timothy, starting in chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermionius and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Light on. Okay, there we go. Um, anyway, we're going to quickly start with a recap of where we were last week in our introduction to 1 Timothy, and then we'll get into this section today here. So last week we talked about how Timothy was like a son to Paul, right? His spiritual son in the faith. He loved, for Timothy. He loved Timothy. He cared for him. And he entrusted Timothy with this church in Ephesus to kind of keep guard against these false teachers, to make sure that sound doctrine is being taught. Remember we talked about beware of those myths and genealogies being taught by certain persons. People who wanted to puff themselves up, who wanted to be seen as smarter than they were, wanted to enter into these vain discussions, wanted to kind of be contentious about certain issues says they were those who swerved from the true gospel, right? They distorted the teaching of the law. And then we looked at what Paul said about the law, right? The good use of the law. The law is not here for the righteous, for, for, for the unrighteous. The good use of the law is to point us to our need for a savior, right? The law exists to show us our deficiencies. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot merit salvation on our own. But the good news of this gospel, this beautiful truth that Paul is teaching to these new Christians in this early church and to us, right, is that Jesus died as payment for our sins, that we may be made right with God. And we know that this law is still 100% valid and true for us today. It is good. It gives us hope. It spurs us on to good works. It should be our delight to live our lives faithfully for the one who gave his life for us. So that's kind of recapping the first half of this first chapter of 1 Timothy last week. And we'll get to our passage today, which Ray read, starting in verse 12, if you want to look there. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
So Paul takes the same passage, the same theme that he brought us into this book with. The law is good because the one who gave it to us is perfect. And that same God is the one who gives me strength today. Strength to persevere, persevere through all sorts of tough times and trials and tribulations. Paul says, praise God. Jesus Christ is our Lord. This is what Paul writes. Paul says, he looked at me and he judged me faithful. He judged me worthy of devoting my entire life to serving him. And we see God appointed Paul to a lifetime of service to him. Right? Paul says, it was an honor I didn't deserve because I was a blasphemer. I persecuted those Christians. I was an insolent opponent. I had to look that word up. It means rude, disrespectful, insulting, arrogant. Paul was a rude, insulting, arrogant opponent to the gospel. Right? And so we've got to remember, we talk about this great apostle Paul, right? The great missionary. Wrote half the Bible. New Testament anyway. But we need to remember, he started out life as a man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 7 briefly introduced us to Saul. It says, he was the young man that oversaw Stephen's executions. Right now, go back to Acts chapter 6. Stephen was one of the seven chosen as these first deacons. And then we see uh, in chapter 7 how he proclaims and teaches the gospel so much that it enraged the crowd so much that they stoned him to death. Paul oversaw that. And then in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it shows us, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then Acts chapter 9, it tells us he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Right? So Paul went to the high council and said, give me approval to travel to Damascus to get more and more of these Christians and throw them in jail, even, even murder them. Right? So that's Paul. That's Paul. That's who's writing this passage here today. Go back to Peter. We talked about him a bit last week and even in our study through 1 Peter months and months ago. We talked about his denial of Christ on the night of his arrest. How he was so ashamed that he went out and he wept bitterly. He felt that shame. And then after the resurrection, Jesus restores him. Restores their relationship and says, Peter, feed my sheep. Okay, and then we saw Peter go from fearful and ashamed to being Someone as bold as Californian rolling up in a huckleberry patch. <laughs> he got bold and he got up to proclaim the gospel. No fear, no shame. Sold out for Christ. He didn't care what you did to him. He knew what he'd been forgiven of. So that's Peter, right? There's a scene from the movie Braveheart, if you picture it. There's a man named Robert the Bruce, and he was one of the leaders of Scotland here at the time. And there's this insurrection led by William Wallace going on. And so Robert the Bruce wants to follow them and let's take back Scotland. And his dad is this curmudgeon with leprosy and he's hiding in the back rooms. He's kind of like this puppet master orchestrating all the events here. And his dad tells him to betray William Wallace. If you've seen the movie, it's a really great scene. And he, he does it and he feels so much shame and guilt over that, that afterwards he's talking to his dad and he says, I will never again be on the wrong side. 
I will never be on the wrong side. Multiply that by infinity, right? This is what Peter felt after he betrayed Christ and was forgiven. He would never be on the wrong side of his Savior again. You could beat him. You could kill him. You could throw him in prison. It didn't matter. So think about this shame we talk about with Peter that is made clear in Scripture because one dark, scary night, he denied Jesus three times after Jesus had foretold that that would happen. When his world is crumbling all around him, the man he had followed was just arrested and was going to be killed. In the moment of weakness and fear, we see Peter in his weakness and his shame. But think about Paul, right? Paul was a loyalist to the regime. Paul was like the head of the anti-Christian task force. He was these jackbooted thugs that were going in door to door, kicking down Christians' doors, trying to get them, throw them in prison, even to murder them, right? Looking for anyone who'd follow Jesus Christ, right? So Paul's confronted on this road to Damascus by God Almighty, and God says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What would we want God to do to our enemies that were persecuting us, right? Like, you think this through logically, like, finally, the early churches, Lord, save us from this jerk named Saul who's ruining our lives, making this so difficult, and God confronts him, and you'd kind of think they're kind of, maybe someone would be, yes, smite him, wipe him out. But that's not what he does, right? Saul's punishment, his comeuppance, is to become the very thing he hated most in this world, a sold-out follower of Jesus. So after having been radically called and transformed by God, can you not imagine the guilt and shame that Paul lived with? Like, in all his travels, don't you think there was probably someone who was there the day Stephen was murdered and watched Saul oversee that? Maybe on somewhat of a regular basis in his travels, he would run across someone who had a story like, oh... You had my dad thrown in prison. Oh, yeah, you guys came in and took everything from us. Maybe some people even threw it in his face, some people who didn't like him. Paul knows who he was and who we all are. We're sinners. We're blasphemers. We are insolent opponents to the gospel. We are arrogant in our own pride and our own self-righteousness. But the beauty of this testimony of Paul is that he gives thanks to God God deemed him worthy of serving him, serving the Lord. He's like, Lord, not only did you save me, not only did you fully and radically change me from who I was, even though I was a brutal sinner living against you at every single turn, but you gave me the great honor of allowing me to dedicate my life to serve you forever. Isn't that wild? This is for us as well. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, has called all of us he says, pick up your cross and follow me, right? And what did God do to Saul? He didn't save Saul. We'll just call him Paul from now on to make it easy. He didn't save him for like, you're saved. Now I have some potlucks and some picnics, right? And he didn't save us for fire insurance. Okay, now you're not going to hell. Check that one off the list. God saved all of us to dedicate our lives to service to him. That's a fact. Romans 6 tells us, starting in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time 
from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. Before Christ, we were slave to sins. We were free to do whatever we wanted, whatever our little sinful hearts desired, right? We were walking very easily down that broad path to destruction. But, but now that we're saved, and this passage shows us we look back with shame and horror at who we are or even what we've done, knowing that the sins that we partook in would bring forth death, we have been set free from that bondage of sin. We've been set free, but it says here, you have become slaves of God. And what's the reward for that slavery? Just sanctification and eternal life. That sounds appealing to me. I hope it does to you. We have been freed from sin in order to become slaves of God, right? We have not been saved from our sin to be released into this own world of our own pleasures. We were not called out of darkness. We were not given eternal life. Remember, our salvation was not free. It was paid for on the cross by the death of Jesus Christ. We were not saved and granted pardon from our sins to play pickleball and lower your golf handicap or to take long walks on the beach or to read romantic novels at a coffee shop. We were bought, we were bought by a price. We were bought and paid for. But you were not released into freedom just to fall back into your own sin. No one goes to an animal shelter and adopts a cat. And six months ago, this story would have been with a dog, but we're now cat people. I don't know how that happened. But no one goes to an animal shelter and adopts a cat and just releases it to a park. You're free, right? That's not loving. Free willy is not real life. You adopt that pet into your family and you make it yours. So too are we bought from that animal shelter of slavery to sin and adopted into the family of God to bear the fruit, which is the true mark of salvation. And scripture shows us that is to dedicate ourselves to the one who freed us. That's such an ethereal concept, right? Serve the Lord, serve the Lord. Align your steps with the Lord, right? What does that mean? Well, scripture shows us kind of tangibly that often looks like service to the body of Christ, service to the local church, to embed yourselves in the lives of those around you, those God has providentially brought into your fold. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the fruit and love that are in Christ Jesus. This act of mercy and kindness of our Lord onto Paul while he was still a brutal, brutal murderer of Christians, Christ forgave him and Christ called him to be that slave to God. This overwhelmed Paul. This overwhelmed Paul with faith that only comes from the Holy Spirit. To believe in the Lord so deeply that he'll put his hands completely in his care and say, do what you want, Lord. Use me. And this overwhelmed Paul with love to care so deeply for God, for his Lord, for the people God has called him to minister to. My prayer is that we are all filled with this overwhelming, overpowering faith and love, this faith that God's got us. That phrase I love, I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds my future. And that we're filled with a love that just abounds from our lives. That we desire God so much more than fine gold and sweet honey like we hear from the psalmist. 
that we love each other so much that we'd be willing to do anything for our brothers and sisters. That's scriptural. That's John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's a hard ask. I'm not asking that of you right now. But be willing to be open to what God is asking of you. Paul was filled with this kind of faith in God and love for the brethren. And I urge you, I urge all of us, that with whatever measure we are able to, that we see ourselves as part of this commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. That we love so deeply, love the Lord, and we love each other so deeply, we're willing to do whatever we are called and asked of. To say like little Samuel does, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And to see what part of the kingdom of God that the Lord would have us play. Moving on, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Full stop. That's the crux of the gospel right there. The law is not laid down for the unrighteous, um, for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. By his life and death and resurrection, we have come full circle. It's all made crystal clear, right? The law showed us our need for a savior. The law pointed to that Savior, prophesied of that Savior, the Messiah. Jesus came into this world as our Savior to be that Messiah. His death and resurrection makes it perfect. The need for our payment, the need for payment for our sins has been taken care of. Right? And so we talked about how Paul was this preeminent sinner. Other translations have always called it the chief among sinners, El Jefe of sinners. Paul's saying, you think you're a sinner? You got nothing on me. You got nothing on me. Many, many times in my life, I have questioned this passage. I've rolled my eyes and been like, okay, okay, Paul, whatever you say. Sure, you're the chief among sinners. You're the guy who spends his entire life traveling the world, preaching this gospel, left all your friends and family, given up any hope for normalcy, for family life, for just having a job, persecuted, beaten, thrown in prison, all for the sake of the gospel. But Paul says, he's a chief of sinners. Sure you are. Like that time when you were in prison. I love this story. He's in prison. Earthquake happens, him and Silas. Prison doors fly open. Poof, his shackles fall off, right? But, but Paul, such the chief of sinners, right? Such a goody two-shoes, stays put. And then the jailer comes in, is like, oh, no, this is really bad. I'm going to lose my job or my head. And so Paul's like, no, 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 we're all still here. We're here. Don't worry about that, jailer. We just stayed because he's the chief of sinners, right? He's such a bad guy that he decided to stay in prison. He's like, I was waiting for a sign from God. Like, maybe the prison door is flying open. I wasn't sure. Certainly when my shackles fall off, I considered it. But no, jailer, let me tell you about Jesus. In fact, let's go down and baptize your entire family right now. So when I read Paul saying he is the chief of sinners, I tend to scoff. But Paul knew his past, right? I'm sure that past was never far from his mind. 
Paul knows what he's capable of apart from Christ. And Paul knows his heart. I know my heart. We all know our own hearts, right? We know how we can look on the outside, how we can put our best foot forward. We can do the right things most of the time, at least when people are watching. Our marriages can look really good for two hours on a Sunday morning. My kids can be really well-behaved. I mean, you don't know what I had to say or do to them to get them to be well-behaved. Paul didn't fool himself, and neither should we. He knows he is a sinner at heart. He knows he is capable of rage and hatred and murder. So when he calls himself the chief among sinners, Paul is not exaggerating. He feels it. He knows that by, except for the grace of God, he would be a monster. But Paul is not self-loathing here. He's just stating a fact. God is glorified by his past. Self-loathing is a sin. It is. Don't hate yourself. Don't hate, hate the attributes about you, how God has created you. You are a child of God. You are an image bearer. God sees you, if you're a believer, as a pure, spotless reflection of his son. But also, Romans 12.3 is going to warn us. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul knows better than anyone that you are not the sum of your worst sins, that you are not as bad as your worst point in life. But, as the author of Romans, he also knows you're not as good as you think you are either. There's two of these sides of this coin, two pitfalls to avoid, right? This self-loathing, woe is me, I'm no good. You don't know how bad I am. There's no hope for me. Or this self-righteous, kind of like the Pharisees, like, I may not be perfect, but I'm pretty close, and at least I'm not as bad as that guy. These are both pitfalls to avoid. The self-loathing one who struggles to forgive themselves of what they've done, lay in bed at night, replaying all their past sins, maybe even scrolling through all the text messages they sent and making sure they worded them properly. Maybe the one who holds themselves back and keeps friends or family or church family at arm's length because they just don't want you to get to know them too well. Maybe they feel they aren't worthy or good enough. To you, self-loather, I say your sins are forgiven. Not, not by my power. We're not Catholic. But I tell you, by the work on the cross, Jesus Christ forgives your sin. Psalms 103 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Jesus tells the woman caught in the very act of adultery, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Brother and sister, your sins are forgiven. It's time that all of us, like Paul, come to grip with our past We stop looking down at who we once were and start looking forward to who Christ has called you to be, who you can be the rest of your life. The Lord chastens those he loves. God can use even sin in your life to draw you back to him. We saw that with Peter. To wake us up, to shake us to our core. We see that super clearly with David and Bathsheba. There's a reason David wasn't out at war with his army. Robert the Bruce had to to betray William Wallace to know what the right side was. Peter had to deny Jesus to see how weak 
and self-righteous he was so Christ could make him bold for him. And to the self-righteous in here, I pray there are none. But Jesus did not come to save the healthy but the sick. It's far better for you to see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior than as a saint in need of nothing. Jesus makes it clear. The poor in spirit, the sorrowful, the meek, the peacemakers, they will inherit the kingdom of God. We should seek to find ourselves on that list rather than proud, arrogant, lovers of self, lovers of money, quarrelsome. Those who boast in their own strength, we have the scriptures. Read them and tell me which one God loves and which one God destroys. Continuing on, verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So in acknowledging what a sinner Paul was, and he realizes that his transformation from Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the way, to Paul the apostle being persecuted for the name of Christ... This is a great example of everything we've just talked about. If this great monster Saul, whom everyone feared, if he could become a converted, sold-out follower of Christ, there must be something to this Jesus Christ thing, right? That is what God used Saul for. I'm sure God could have used anyone. It was no coincidence he chose a zealot against him. Paul is glad, and he shows us here, that Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe. Paul's glad to have anything in his life point to the glory of Jesus Christ, to further the gospel message. Here's an example. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jew, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. And in verse 23, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is glad that through him, Christ is demonstrated. The glory of Christ is demonstrated. Through the sin and troubles, troubles he's gone through in his life, Christ is glorified. Even to the point of his past sin and shame. How about us? Can you look at your life and see how God has used situations to glorify his name. That people can look at you and see Christ. Scripturally, we have no greater example than the story of Joseph. Right? So Joseph, favored son of Jacob, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery. Favorite servant of Potiphar, also favorite servant of Potiphar's wife, ended up in prison. In prison, he's the favorite of the prison guard interprets the dream faithfully and accurately to the chief baker and the chief cupbearer still gets forgotten and languished in prison. Finally, God gives him power all of, over all of Egypt, right? This is many years going by, right? And the interpretation of his dreams, through that, he was able to save the land, store up grain, so much so that his brothers finally come and buy grain from him, right? And he messed with them a little bit, we know that. But what he says to them is, which you meant for evil, God meant for good. We don't always have a bird's eye view of our life. In fact, we never do, right? We never know exactly why when we see this, why we're going for that. 
We have tunnel vision so often. It's impossible not to. We are mired in one timeline in the here and now. Whatever we're going through, that's it. That's our moment. That's our reality. We don't know what God is using, whatever we're going through yet. Yet is the key word. People always ask, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. Ask Joseph. Why did God allow a child to die? Why does God allow a good Christian man with three kids and a wife to die? Why does God keep you single? Why did your marriage fall apart? Why can't you have kids? Why did your spouse leave you? Why did your church fall apart? We know Romans 8.28 tells us, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But I'll be honest, sometimes that's not a lot of comfort when you're the one being sold into slavery, when you're the one languishing in prison. But Paul does not forget what he's done, what he's gone through, what he's suffered. And he says it clearly, I receive this mercy that the perfect patience of Jesus might be seen. Amen. That's the glory of God. We don't know why we go through the trials we go through. We might not see them at this time. We might not even see him in our lifetime. By the grace of God, Joseph was able to see the wisdom of God's plan in his life. But don't forget, that took a long time. If you keep your focus on God, if we keep our focus on God, if our focus is just living for the gospel, putting one foot in front of the other, following Christ, being faithful, then like these early Christians metaphorically giving all you have, to live in unity with your church family, at least we'll be able to say with a pure conscience, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, I love this phrase. I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds my future. And that, that might be enough to be a Paul-like example to those providentially in your life, to be that perfect example that Christ is seen in you, that others may see your life and what you go through and give glory and honor to the king of ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God. Verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of, shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Last week we spoke a bit about Timothy and how he met Paul. And he'd seen and recognized the apparent giftedness and faithfulness in Timothy. And he took him under his wing and he circumcised him so that he could be of use to the Jews. Paul had even laid his hands on Timothy, prophesying over him, consecrating him to ministry, dedicating him, asking the Holy Spirit to fill him and use him. And he says, in accordance with all of that, Timothy, my child, fight the good fight. God has gifted you. God has filled you. Just like being saved, you're not saved for your own foolishness. You're not gifted and called by God to be popular and have a great life to use impressive words, to show how much you know, but that you may be used by God to wage this good warfare, warfare, keeping hold of the faith, having a good conscience. This phrase here, this passage, kind of reminds me of that parable of the talents. 
So Jesus gives this parable about a master going on a journey. As he leaves, he entrusts his servants with a certain amount of gold measured in talents. It was a unit of measure for gold or silver. Um, but either way, he gives one five talents, one two talents, and one one talent. And this is clearly a metaphor for actually our giftings and our talents as well. So that measurement works really well for us. But to the first servant, he said, um, you know, he comes back and the first servant says, hey, master, I took your five and I turned it into ten. And the master's like, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I'll give you much. Right? And the one who has given two, same thing. Master, look, I took your two and I made four. And the master says the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then what does the last one do who was given one talent? He buried it in the sand, did nothing with it. Gave the master his talent back. Look, it's perfect, it's shiny. What does the master say? The master calls him a wicked and slothful servant. We have all been given a certain measure of talent, of giftings, of strengths, of weaknesses, right? Some have high IQs. Some of you have high EQs. Some have strong backs and are able bodies, able to do a lot of physical labor. Some are patient and gentle. Some serve the church and others with hospitality and love. Some can just sit and listen to someone who's struggling for hours on end. Unfortunately, sometimes people think they don't have a ton to offer because they're not a musician. They're not a leader or because they are shy or they deal with anxiety. The good news is if that's you, you're in good company. Many people feel that way. Most people feel they're not quite adequate. But you're not off the hook. God did not make you with zero talents. I promise you that. Not only do you have talents, but you're called to use them. By Jesus here in the parable of the talents that we just looked at, but look what Paul does to Timothy, right? He says, Timothy, in accordance with the people who have prophesied over you and the many who have prayed faithfully over you, and even I have laid hands and invested in you. He tells him to use his giftings. In, in chapter 4 of this book, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Because of all of that, fight the good fight. Press on towards that high calling of Jesus Christ. Use your gifts and your strengths. Use your talents in service to the Lord, but in service to these local churches where you are at. In that same passage in chapter 4 that Paul is talking about how to use these gifts and use your gifts, we're not talking supernatural gifts. Here are the gifts he lists out. Teach these things. Be an example in speech and in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Those aren't supernatural gifts. Brother and sister, you have a calling, right? You have a calling on your life, and it's probably more than just sitting in a comfortable chair, drinking coffee, and saying the occasional amen, although I do appreciate that. I know as I look around this room, even now, I'm preaching to the choir mostly. I know many of you faithfully clean this building and do the landscape and host people in your houses, and get our potlucks organized, all right? I'm not, I'm not chastising or asking for more per se, right? This is not a complaint by any stretch of the imagination, but this is the same thing that Paul's doing, exhorting Timothy, right? Timothy was no slouch. Read Acts. But here is Paul repeatedly reminding Timothy to press on. Press on. Continue to do all you can do. This is good advice for all of us. Don't limit your service to God. 
So many times in our lives have we known Christians or been in situations where being a Christian, man, I show up for an hour and a half on Sunday, right? We are called to so much more, especially as these times get darker and darker. That last verse coming into verse 20, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn, to, they may learn not to blaspheme. Huh, kind of stinks for Hymenaeus and Alexander. Put on permanent blast in the Bible from Paul. Glad to see that Paul kind of uh, dropped this certain people euphemism we saw in the first half of this chapter. Now he's just calling them out, naming names. But what'd they do? They rejected what? Did, or is it for neglecting to fight the good fight? Is it for not holding the faith? Was it for not doing these things in a good conscience? Why did he turn them over to Satan? All of the above, I think. Just sentence diagramming here, looking all this together, putting this together as a big picture. Here's what he's kind of saying. You have been gifted by God. You've been granted a certain amount of talent and treasure to use for his glory, to use for the edification of the body and the saints around you. Many have come before you, been in your life, poured into you, invested into you, prophesied over you, laid hands on you. You've been set aside, called to serve the Lord. Therefore, Keep on trucking. Don't give up. Don't get down. Don't let naysayers keep you from your calling. Don't let anger or bitterness and laziness creep in. Hold fast to this gospel and do this with a good conscience, a clear, clear heart, a pure heart, and clean motives. Don't be looking for praise and adoration or position or to be thought of as smart, right? Don't be one of those engaging in these vain discussions. But do this obediently and faithfully for the sake of the gospel. This gospel truth that you have been entrusted with. That thing we just talked about right now, is that just for Timothy? Is that also not for us? Could we not replace Hymenius and Alexander with perhaps someone we've known in our past? Fill in the blank. Someone we've seen become disillusioned with the church. Heart of heart. Someone who's become divisive judgmental, lost their first love? Have you not seen someone, at least visibly so far now, being handed over to Satan to walk away from God's love? Let me close with this. Since God has saved you, brother and sister, God has called you, God has set you apart. Fight the good fight. Hold fast to this faith. Serve where you are called. Be in this sacred fellowship of believers called the church. The church is the bride of Christ. This is God's will for our lives. Hold fast to one another. Let's keep each other tight. Let's lock arms with one another. Lest anyone stray or be pulled loose. Lest anyone be handed over to Satan. God has blessed us here. I know in my life with unity and friendship and fellowship. God has blessed us to love one another, to do life and ministry with one another, to hold fast to the hope and promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God above, we are eternally in debt to you. We cannot repay the debt that you have paid for us. And we don't have to, God. You have done the work. We thank you for that. I pray that we can dedicate our lives 
to serving you, to serving your people, to loving them, to fight the good fight, and to tarry until you return. In your name we pray. Amen.